Turn with me to the book of Joel. If you already have it marked, it's going to be difficult to find. Joel, if you know where Daniel is, go to Daniel. Uh, so it's after Psalms, it's before the New Testament. So if you open your Bible right in the middle, dead center, you're going to find Psalms. Go past Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the books are going to start getting really small. Daniel, Hosea, and then Joel. If you get to Obadiah, Malachi, or Matthew, you've gone too far. Uh, or you can just l- listen to me read it. The book of Joel is part of the prophets. So Old Testament, so think uh, the temple, sacrifices, before Jesus has come to the earth, before he died on the cross, it's the Old Testament, but after Moses. So they've already left Egypt, they're the kingdom of Israel set up. Uh, the prophets showed up to tell the people where they messed up. So Moses gave the law, the prophets show the people where they broke the law and tell them what God wants them to know. Now, these are called, the, this collection is called the Minor Prophets, only because they're short, not because they're not important. They're actually one of the most, some of the most important books in the Old Testament because they tell, have a direct word for the people of Israel, and they also predict what Christ will do in the future. So they're, they're short and packed with information. So we're going to look at Joel. We're actually going to read the whole book, which is three chapters. And it seems like a lot, but it's going to take only about 10 minutes. It's not normal. We don't normally read this long. But I imagine that some of us have never read the Minor Prophets, ever. And so this is a chance for me as the pastor to make sure that you got something from all different parts of the Bible. The Bible has a lot of different writings and a lot of different ways. And so we want to make sure we get a little bit of everything to get sort of a full picture. So we're going to read the whole book of Joel. And to set it up, a locust plague came to Israel and ate everything, everything. And Joel the prophet shows up afterwards to tell the people what it means. So Joel is going to tell them how bad it was, sort of lament over how bad it was. He's going to call for repentance, and he's going to talk about God's judgment as well as God's mercy. So as, you, as we read through the book, listen for those things. The explanation of God's destructive judgment, the call for repentance, God's mercy, and God's plan for the future. Joel, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away, 
Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering has been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree and the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down. For the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out. For fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you. For the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be such after them even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots, over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devour the stubble, like a strong army set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain, all faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, though they lunge between the weapons. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assemble. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babes. 
Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between the, alt between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nation should rule over them. Why should people say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. He will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts has eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant who the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land, they have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as a payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me, swiftly and speedily I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from your borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near and let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened 
and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, the water of the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, because of the violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. That is the word of prophecy from God to his people. It's heavy, isn't it? And it was supposed to be heavy. It was the end of the world. So when you think of a locust plague, that wasn't hyperbole or exaggeration. What literally happened was a plague of locusts came through and ate every single green thing there. They ate the bark off the trees. They say, and this still happens, you can go to places with, with large agriculture areas. When a locust plague comes through, it can be as, as big as 90 miles wide. And they say it looks like a fire burned through. Everything green is gone. Now, if you live in a land that only has agricultural products and the locust eats everything, that is the end of the world. There's nothing to eat. There's no commerce. There's no produce. Any reserves you have, you have to go outside of your country to buy. So if you are on the edge of society, you're done. Have you ever seen these apocalyptic movies where they're sort of wandering through this desolate wilderness that used to be America, that's what this is. You would walk through your countryside, you wouldn't see a blade of grass. You wouldn't see a single leaf on a tree. Everything was burned and gone. And it's at this time that the prophet shows up with a word from God. Now, it's important to understand, Joel is written to a people under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant... That's what Moses made with on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, if you think of the Ten Commandments. And it was basically God saying to his people, I brought you out of Egypt, I rescued you. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses speaks to the people and says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So in this covenant, it was very simple. 
Do what God says, God blesses you. Disobey God, God curses you. And so what we see in Joel is that the people had disobeyed God, they had broken the covenant, and God sent a swarm of locusts and drought to wipe out their land, just like he agreed to do in the beginning. God is simply keeping the terms of his covenant. He's doing exactly what he had said he would do maybe a thousand years earlier. And that's what Joel is saying to them. The prophets all show up to tell the people that they broke what they had done, what they had agreed to do with the law of Moses. To say, you didn't obey God, and now God is punishing you. That is the Old Covenant. The Old Testament is basically this. Here's what God did. Here's the agreement he made. And then all the prophets are saying, and here's how you broke it. Here's how you broke the law of Moses. So the law was given. The prophets show where it was broken. And Israel has now been decimated because they broke the law of God. Total destruction. Why is this written to us? Why is this still preserved for us? To show how God deals with evil. He destroys it. He wipes it out. When God does something, he does it all the way. And so there's a whole chapter that just goes through the list of how bad this thing is. How many things have been destroyed? The chewing locust, the swarming locust, the crawling locust, just over and over. The trees have been stripped bare. He has laid waste. He has ruined the fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Have you ever stripped the bark off of a tree? Every tree was white because all the bark had been stripped off. It looked like an atomic bomb had dropped. If you can imagine what it looks like with an atomic bomb, everything just blasted. That's what God had done. He even took away the sacrifices that were for him. You who minister to my God for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. There was nothing to offer God. He had taken away everything that he had given them. Total destruction. God has not changed. When he judges, he judges completely. The wrath and judgment of God are the same in our day as it was in that day. When the Bible says, fear the Lord your God, we have to take into account that when he judges, he destroys. He destroys. When he executes wrath, he strips the land bare of evil. That's what this locust had done. That's why the locust is such a prominent theme in the Old Testament, because of the way it destroys, it just destroys everything. It just wipes it clean. God removing evil. And who does he judge? All who are guilty. Who did the locust come upon? The whole nation. Everyone. Because all of Israel was guilty. Chapter 2 and verse 15 it says, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. But it's not just the elders. It wasn't just the leaders who had done wrong. Gather the children, the nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. He's saying everyone needs to show up because everyone's in trouble. You're about to get married, so the bridegroom, they're, they're, it's their wedding day. He said, postpone the wedding, come to the house of God. Bring the babies, bring the new mothers. Everybody needs to be here because everybody's in trouble. Everyone's under judgment. 
For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When God brings judgment, he shows that everyone is guilty. Now, this was to Israel, but it's not just Israel. In chapter 3, he says, For behold, in those days at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, this is talking about a final judgment, I will gather all nations. All nations. That means not just Israel, but everyone else. No one is, ex- is excluded. You see, the judgment of God is total in its destruction and it's total in its comprehensiveness. No one's left out. Everyone is under God's judgment. If God is the creator of all, he's the judge of all. For all have sinned. Amen. And so all the nations come before God to be judged. Let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The word Jehoshaphat simply means God judges. For there I'll sit to judge all the surrounding nations, for their wickedness is great. Why were they being judged? Two categories here. The people who had God's word and the people who didn't. So Israel was judged because God gave them a word that said, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They didn't do it. They got the Bible, they read the Bible, they understood the Bible, and they disregarded the Bible. They said, I know God says that I should love my enemies, but I'm not going to. I know God says that I should worship him, that I should give my money to him, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. And so God says, since you will not do what I say, I will not protect you. I will judge you. This is the fundamental problem with Israel. They weren't just oppressed or broken. They were rebels. They knew God was in charge, and they refused to follow him. They had the word of God, and they did not listen to it. And that's why the judgment is so great. What about the surrounding nations who did not have the Bible, who did not know better? They're still judged. And what are they judged for? They're not judged for rejecting the law. They didn't have the law. They're judged because of things they knew were wrong. Look at specifics in chapter 3. Notice what God does here. This is important for us in our day and age. He doesn't just say that they're bad people. He doesn't even say that they won't worship me. He lists specific crimes against other people as the reason for their judgment. He says, they have cast lots, or they, they have scattered among my, they have divided up my land. They stole land that wasn't theirs, which is a human problem. So this was written between 800 and 500 BC. Here we are, thousands of years later, still doing the same thing, stealing land that's not ours, nations invading other nations, colonizing. This is why God is going to wipe them out, because they took land that wasn't theirs. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. What, what's, what is what's happening? Human trafficking. They had a lifestyle they wanted to maintain, a lifestyle of sexual freedom, a lifestyle of enjoyment, and they sacrificed the children to do it. Nothing's changed. People in America want a life of sexual freedom, 
and they sacrifice children to do so. They want a life of partying and excess, or they want a life of comfort and work, and they sacrifice children to do it. Whether we kill unborn children so that we can maintain a certain lifestyle, or whether we neglect our own children, nothing's changed. They have cast lots. They have given a child for a harlot. They have executed a child for a life of sexual freedom. They sold a girl for wine. They got rid of the child so they could have a life of pleasure, a life of comfort. And God is going to wipe them out for it. You see how serious the sin against other people is? A nation that harbors human trafficking, that harbors sin like this, will be destroyed. God has not changed. He does not hate children now, and he loved them in the past. He does not overlook human trafficking now when he destroyed it in the past. The God of justice was just then, and he's just now. Because you have taken my silver and my gold. You have carried into your temples my prized possession. Look at the American corporate structure. Look at Wall Street. Look at the scandals. Look at the profiteering. It's powerful people stealing money from other people. People steal other people's money if they can. And God is saying, I'm going to destroy all of you for this theft. The point of Joel, the reason Joel was given to us, is so that we can open our eyes, look at the country around us, and see the evil in it. And then see our participation in it. You say, well, I don't participate in those things. Don't you? You know, if you look at pornography, you're supporting human trafficking. There's a direct connection between sexual abuse and pornography. Look it up. You know when you consume goods and goods and goods and you can't stop shopping and you can't stop buying? You know you're buying into the American dream of materialism, of profit and money above all else? We're a part of that. Let's not pretend because we're not on Wall Street that we don't buy the products that Wall Street produces. You say, well, I don't like these sweatshops. Then why do you buy stuff from them? Well, I don't know about it. So it's okay. See, God is going to bring everyone to the valley of decision. And that's not a decision for us. The valley of decision is God saying, it's my time to make a decision. I'm going to decide if you're innocent or guilty. But we're all guilty. Our nation is guilty. Our nation will be judged. That is what this book is about. It's about showing God's perfect holiness, his hatred of evil, and his judgment on it. God has perfect, absolute justice. You see, God is good because he hates evil. And God is good because he destroys evil. We don't like that. We think, oh, that's mean. It's only because we're evil. And we realize that if God destroys evil, he wants to destroy us who are evil. And so we need a way out. Now, we're going to get to a, the God's way out. But our way out is, well, he's not really like that. If Joel is the Bible and Jesus said it was, then this is who God is. Yeah. And he says, I will destroy evil. Let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and go down, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. We don't really understand this concept because we don't live in an agricultural society. You know what a wine press is? You fill a big thing 
with grapes, and then you go and you smash all the grapes down. You crush them completely until they're no longer grapes. That's the imagery. All the evil is put into a vat, and God comes and stamps on it and crushes it, removes it, eliminates it. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. This is what the day of the Lord is. He's talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is God showing up to set things right. We have what's called the problem of evil. If God is good and God is all-powerful, then why does evil exist? Here's the answer. God is good and God is all-powerful and he will remove evil. The problem for us is that people are evil, which means he must remove all people to remove all evil. God is perfect in justice. Verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. And Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer in your heart. What do you do with a murderer? You get rid of evil. God wants only what's good. And so he removes evil perfectly and absolutely. The prophets are a judgment to us and a warning to us. Isn't it terrible? Isn't it awful? The day of the Lord where the sun goes black, the moon turns to blood because of the awesome power of God destroying evil. The response here should cause us to lament, despair of ourselves and despair of this world. But the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament, we know, sent Jesus to save us. Well, he sent Jesus to the Old Testament too. This is not just a book of judgment, it's a book of salvation. But you have to know that there's judgment before you know there's salvation. If you think you're okay, what's the message of salvation to you? It's nothing. So, before God can save us, he has to show us how bad we are and how much we need to be saved. Amen. So as it were, we all stand before God in this valley of decision, knowing we should be trampled and crushed and eliminated. And what does he say? Now cry out. Sometimes we think, it's so bad I can't stand it. Imagine these people in Israel. Everything's gone. But they're not gone. They're still alive. And where there's life, there's hope. So you're going through something right now, and you say, I can't stand it. It won't work. There's no way this will work out right. But you're still alive, aren't you? God has kept you alive as a gracious gift to you. He did not destroy Israel. He warned Israel. Now, it was a terrible warning, wasn't it? But he left them alive so that he could save them. And he has preserved us so he can save us. He's given us chance after chance. Judgment is a gracious warning. Now, we don't think of a swarm of locusts coming through and eating everything as gracious, do we? That sounds like punishment. But now Israel will listen. Now that they're in trouble, they'll listen to what they should have listened to before. Chapter 2, 1, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm. What does an alarm do? It warns you of the worst thing coming. 
So God has said, hey, I don't want to kill you. I don't want to destroy you for your sins. So I'm warning you. I'm giving you a chance. And that principle still applies to us. Though we may have escaped the final wrath, God is warning us of destructive habits within ourselves. Within your sinful body, you contain patterns, habits, desires that will destroy you. And God is trying to warn you about those. And when do you listen? When the locusts come. When there's trouble. C.S. Lewis says, we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When you suffer, don't you go to God? Now you need God. That's God's gracious gift. He's saying, you needed me before, but you wouldn't listen. But now I have your attention. So Joel is saying to the people, God is still looking for you. He just had to take away everything else that you had so you would listen to him. He had to make you feel the pain of your sin so you would listen to him so that he could save you. And so he calls the people, gird yourself and lament, you priest, wail, you who minister, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, and cry out to the Lord. God will save you if you humble yourself and you cry out to him. Chapter 2, verse 12, now therefore says the Lord, the whole first chapter is how bad the judgment is. It gets their attention. Now they're listening. Now God speaks. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. You see God's heart in the Old Testament? He wants to save his people from sin, but they won't listen. So he's given us the book of Joel, to accomplish the same goal. He wants to save us. But first, you have to admit that you need to be saved. The people of Israel said, we're fine. We're God's people. And the people in the church said, we're fine. We love Jesus. It doesn't matter anymore. And he says, humble yourself. You have to admit you're a sinner before you can be saved as a sinner. Some people here think that God doesn't want you anymore because you're a sinner, that you've sinned too much, that you've known what to do was right, but you didn't do it, and so now it's too late. And once you can fix yourself, maybe God will take you back. What's the Bible say? Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Just admit that you've got nothing. That's what God wants. He wants you to admit that you are a bad person, but that's who he saves. He saves bad people. He doesn't need you to be a good person because then he wouldn't need to save you. Amen. He didn't come to heal the, the well. He came to heal the sick. The worse you are, the more you should see how much you need Jesus and the more you will see that God wants you to turn to him. But some of you think you're doing okay. You're like, I'm, I'm all right. I look around at the world and I certainly don't act like everybody around me. I don't steal things and I'm kind to people and I, I stand up for truth and I do the right thing and you will be judged. God resists the proud. The better you think you are, the more God resists you. 
So he says to you, turn to me with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garment. Look at yourself honestly and realize you're as much of a problem as everybody else. And until you see yourself for who you are, God will not save you. He only saves the humble. He only saves those who need, know they need to be saved. So Joel is saying to us, admit that you are exactly who God says you are. Someone deserving of judgment. Admit it. And once you can see how worthless and helpless you are, then God offers a promise. Turn to me, for he is gracious and merciful. The mercy of God is this. You should be punished, but God's not going to. There is a judgment on you for your sin, and God's mercy says, I'm not going to execute that judgment. You will not go to the valley of decision. You will not be pressed down like the wine. God will show mercy in, in chapter 2 and verse 32. It says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. Say to yourself, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, God, save me. Save me from everything that's wrong with me. And you will be saved. There's no promise like that in the world. And only the Holy Spirit can tell you that it's true. And only you can say, I will turn. I will repent. But there's another question here. If God is just, how does he let these human traffickers get away with it? You see, imagine there's a cup of God's wrath, and every time someone sins, God puts a little bit, an equal amount of justice in that cup. And as the years grow, the cup fills up. Equal amount of judgment in the cup for the sins in the world. Now, a just God will take that cup of judgment and pour the whole thing out on mankind. Every bit of just punishment for every single sin. But here he's saying he won't pour it out on us. But he must pour out the cup of judgment. So what does he do? We fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus comes. He's in the garden. Before he must die on the cross, he says to God, there's a cup full of your wrath. Let it pass from me. For every human trafficker, for every sex trafficker, for every rapist, for every murderer, for every genocidal maniac, there was a cup full of wrath. And Jesus wanted, was supposed to drink that. The wrath that the murderer deserved, every murderer since the beginning of time, Jesus had to drink it. And so he says as a human, I don't want that. Do you want to be punished as a rapist? Do you want to be punished for every single rapist that ever lived? Of course not. But then what does Jesus say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And that night, that next day, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and drank all of it. Every bit of it, all the judgment and the horror in this book, Jesus took. When he was on that cross, imagine him being in a wine press as God smashed him for every sin that these people had done, for every sin that we have done, Jesus absorbed all of it. So now God can say to us, you just call on me and I'll save you. Jesus already paid for it. 
Jesus took everything that Joel warned about. So what's left for us? If Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom, what do we have to drink? Nothing. Just salvation. That's the new covenant. You see, the old covenant was terrible, wasn't it? Obey or be judged. Well, you can't obey. So God says, here's a new covenant. Just believe, and Christ will obey. The Old Testament, God says to the people of Israel, you will be judged by all of your works. In the New Testament, God says, you will be judged by all of Christ's work. If you turn from your works and turn to Christ. But this is what's so great about Christianity, because isn't that a pretty good deal? Isn't that a merciful deal where God removes all the punishment from us and puts it on Christ? But you know, that's not all of the gospel. That's just the first half. The first half of the gospel is you don't have to pay for your sins. You can escape judgment. But then God says, but I'm not just merciful. I'm also gracious. Mercy gets rid of judgment, but grace gives gifts. And so God says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to give you more than I took away in the beginning. You thought the Garden of Eden was great? I'm going to give you more than that. In chapter 2 and verse 12, Now therefore the Lord says, Rend your hearts, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful. Who knows if he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him? You see, he turns from judgment, but then he leaves a blessing. You see how great God is? He doesn't punish us, and then he lifts us up higher than we were before. It's Imagine... A child breaks into your house to steal all your stuff, and you catch them. Mercy is not calling the cops. You've caught them. They're guilty. You call the police, they're going to be thrown in jail. But you don't call the police. That's mercy. Grace is saying, now stay and have dinner with me. I'll make you dinner. And all the stuff that you're going to steal, I'll give it to you. That's grace. That's what God does to us. In chapter 2 and verse 25, it says, So I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never be put to shame. God restores what was taken. But this is crucial. You know what God really gives us? The blessing that exceeds all other blessings? He gives us himself the God of life. And so in verse 27, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. I am in the midst of Israel. We as humans want things. We don't want God. So when God saves us, he gives us what we should want, which is himself. In chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. What do you want? Do you want things? Or do you want God? There's a prosperity gospel in America. You listen to Joel Osteen, you listen to Joyce Myers. They're going to tell you that if you're a Christian, God will give you what you want. That if you do the right thing, God will give you things. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. That's an Old Testament gospel. You don't want the Old Testament deal. Do good and God will give you things. You want God himself. And so what the new covenant promises 
is that God will himself come down and live with you. And that's heaven on earth, isn't it? What is heaven except for God's throne? So if God comes to live with us, that's heaven on earth. True Christianity loves God for himself. False Christianity loves God for his things. When you feel the urge to do good to get things, you've left the gospel. But when you just want God, that's the gift. Here's the hope of the new covenant. This is what Joel prophesied. See, this is Pentecost Sunday. And on Pentecost, there was a gift given to the church. Was it money? Nope. Was it safety? No. They all died. All the disciples died after the gift was given. What was the gift? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters, your old men, your young men, your servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's what we need. God himself in us. Not in some of us. Every single person here who trusts Christ has God with them. There's not a single person here who can't have God with them. Doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your ability, doesn't matter your intelligence. All that matters is that it says here, whoever calls on the name of the Lord. The Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost and filled every single member of the church. When we understand the gospel, we understand the greatness of God with us. And then we realize all the rest of it doesn't matter. And so you can gauge your spirituality by how much you care about this world. And don't we all care too much? And so Joel calls us as a prophet to not care about this world, to care about God, and to care about God with us. But again, God doesn't just give us that, though that would be enough. He promises a future. He says, one day you'll have God in you and God in the world. You see, right now God is with us, and so everything's okay. But he's not with the rest of the creation, is he? You see sickness, you see pain, you see violence. But God says one day he'll be with us and with his creation. He'll burn up this world and get rid of all the bad things in it and create a new world. God with us, God with creation, without an enemy. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no strangers or aliens shall ever pass through her again. No invaders, no enemies, no sickness. Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. No matter how bad it gets right now, God is with you. And God will fix everything. See, Christianity right now is all about faith. But part of that faith is knowing that it won't be faith in the future. It will not be faith in the future. So we now believe what God will do. Richard Allen, who was born a slave, who watched his mother be taken away and sold to another family, who knew suffering his whole life, prayed this prayer. Oh my God, in all my danger, temporal and spiritual, I will hope in you who art almighty power and therefore able to relieve me. But see, he knew that life wasn't going to work out. You were a slave in 1780. So this is what he prays because he understood the gospel. Though my body be crumbled into dust and that dust blown over the face of the earth, 
Yet I undoubtedly know my Redeemer lives and shall raise me up at the last day. Whether I am comforted or left desolate, whether I enjoy peace or am afflicted with temptation, whether I'm healthy or sick, succored or abandoned by the good things of this life, I will always hope in thee, O my chiefest and infinite good. That's what Jesus offers to you. Freedom from judgment and a hope that this world can't touch. But you know that's all he offers you? He doesn't offer you this world. He doesn't offer you a minute of safety in this world. He doesn't offer you a dollar in this world. He offers you himself. And one day when this world passes away, then you'll get all that stuff. So you have to ask yourself right now, will you take Jesus and nothing else? Or will you take the wrath of God? Will you take God himself or just some stuff on this earth? God is coming. The day of the Lord is coming when he will remove all who stand against him and he will save his people. You're either under judgment or you're saved from judgment, but you're not ignored. So turn to Christ. Jesus Christ will save you and bless you. Let's pray.